is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Military humanitarianism, on its surface, sounds like an oxymoron. How can any militarized action promote the health and happiness of humanity? Yet the violence of military humanitarianism or wars conducted in the name of saving the victims of the oppressed happens... That happens all of the time. But what happens when those victims are saved but the oppression continues elsewhere? Does the conflagration continue worldwide, repeating itself over and over again, leaving us in an endless cycle of violence against those who commit violence against others? And if it does, are we stuck with an inevitable future of more and more violence without relief ad infinitum? If so, how do we break out of the cycle of seemingly endless violence? To determine that, we have to reflect on the sacred nature we apply to the victim and their connection to God and our religious beliefs that quell our fears of the unknown, the void from which we come and to which we will return. What if the violence writ large throughout our Eurocentric religious beliefs is the cause of ongoing violence and does that mean then for us to confront violence we must confront liberalism and its demand that we sanctify the victim and launch wars to protect them at all costs i know it's a lot of intense and deep questions questions we'll hopefully all understand better when we have the return of brad evans author of ecce humanitas Beholding the Pain of Humanity, Brad is Professor of Political Violence and Aesthetics at the University of Bath. His many books include Atrocity Exhibition, Life in the Age of Total Violence, which we discussed with Brad back in 2019. You can find that interview and listen to it for free by searching on Brad's name at thisishell.com. Brad is also author of 2015's Disposable Futures, The Seduction of Violence in the Age of Spectacle. Brad led a dedicated series on violence for The Stone, a forum for contemporary philosophers from the New York Times, and is the lead editor for the Histories of Violence section of the L.A. Review of Books. Brad's Portrait of Violence book won a prestigious Independent Publishers Award in 2019 in the graphic novel category. He's also the founder and director of the Histories of Violence project that has a user base spanning 148 different countries, which you can find at historiesofviolence.com. Alongside developing its educational initiatives, he has recently directed a global research project on the theme of disposable life to interrogate the meaning of mass violence in the 21st century. You can follow Brad on Twitter at Hist of Violence, and find out more about Brad at his website, brad-evans.co.uk. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Egon Sheely. Egon, anything new by you? Um, You know, other than the uh, 10 mosquito bites on my face, I... <laughs> I yeah. would say it's another day in paradise. Everybody's saying it's a really bad mosquito season. Luckily, we're up on the third floor, and our back deck is a little bit off of where all of the wetness and stuff is. But, yeah, I've heard from everybody throughout the Midwest, this is a really bad year for mosquitoes. Yeah, the rains came last week, and, and so did the mosquitoes. It's just I was walking my dog yesterday, and there was just like a, a pig pen-like cloud of them <laughs> surrounding her. It was really magnificent. When the first rain came last week, it was really weird, because when I walked home from the studio, I was just getting like these huge wafts of warm sewer gas. It was just going over me, washing over me over and over again, and it was really... 
disgusting. I got my COVID test results yesterday. They were supposed to email them to me, and if I had not received the results by yesterday afternoon, I was told to call the clinic and they would tell me over the phone. When I called and asked for the result of my self-administered test, which I was certain I had done improperly, thus nullifying the test, they first asked me, are you traveling? It's the same question they asked when I went to the clinic to get the test. The question confused me because it seemed like if I said no, then they would not give me the test. So I said, no, but a friend is coming into town and I want to make certain I don't have COVID before they stay at my place. Now that I have already taken the test, the question would seem pointless. If I said, no, I'm not traveling, would they have told me that they could not give me my test results? I really didn't understand why they were asking me if I was traveling. After confirming my name, date of birth, mailing an email address, they gave me my results, kinda. Anticipating that that would say the test was positive or negative, I didn't want to get the two confused. I reminded myself that negative meant I did not have the coronavirus. That's when the healthcare worker on the phone said, Mr. Charles, it's good. I asked, do you mean my test came back negative? They said, yes, yes, it's, it's good. Negative, that's it. And I'm starting to wonder exactly how professional the healthcare professionals are who are working at the pop-up clinic on Devon Avenue that seems to be doing absolutely nothing but handing out free COVID tests. Nonetheless, I tested negative for coronavirus, which means that all I have is an awful cold that has lasted three weeks so far and causes me to spend the first 20 minutes of every day in a steaming shower coughing God knows what out of my lungs. But more importantly than any of that, Egon, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This is an important one, Chuck. The question from hell this week is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can either have the This Is Hell coffee mug, the uh, trucker's cap, the winter hat, the tote bag, the t-shirt, the This Is Hell history of the 21st century so far, which is on a flash drive. The This Is Hell medical face mask. If you still want a face mask, we still have one of those. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Kilter for showing his tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. Thanks, Kilter. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. And we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff tries to tame taboos with internet knowledge. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our interview with Brad Evans. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. We got an email from Tynan overnight. Tynan writes, Hi Chuck, I've got a guest suggestion for you. You should consider talking to the scholar Samuel Perry, who studies conservative Christianity and American politics. He's got a new paper out that looks at the way a contemporary evangelical translation of the Bible erases the text's references to slavery and downplays its anti-Semitic language. It's called Whitewashing Evangelical Scripture, The Case of Slavery and Anti-Semitism in the English Standard Version. I know This Is Hell has covered conservative evangelicalism and its attendant problems before, so hopefully this scholarship isn't too niche. 
The article itself is a fascinating read, especially when you consider the broader political context in which evangelical translations are produced and consumed. Perry doesn't discuss this much in the article, but the editors of the English stand standard version are very clearly political actors and were, among other things, avid defenders of the Trump administration. Anyway, I'd love to hear you talk to Perry about the ways biblical translations are used to bolster the modern evangelical movement and support its ideological goals. Thanks, Tynan. The Samuel Perry article Tynan is referring to is published in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. And from what I can gather, Perry argues that in order to defend Christianity from outsider claims of advocacy for slavery and violence and anti-Semitism, evangelicals have essentially been rewriting the English Standard Version of the Bible, a contemporary evangelical revision of the revised Standard Version. They even have teams who are constantly trying to balance evangelicals' own interpretive tradition with negative interpretations made by those who are not evangelicals. In other words, if you find something in the Bible that is distasteful, the evangelical defense is, okay, then we'll just take that out of the Bible, which makes their religious beliefs sound a lot more like a political ideology than any faith. So thanks, Tynan. I had no idea how rewriting the Bible was such an ongoing project for evangelicalism. We also got a video sent to us by Justin, and I'm hoping that Alex has shared this on all the social medias. Justin writes, Hey guys, thought to share this with you. I scored a side gig doing some lighting and grip work and was looking up the people I will be working with by searching the names in an email chain from the director. One name search brought up this video entitled National Salute Value Summary. Doesn't that sound like fun? Which ultimately wasn't involved with the original name I was searching. But holy crap, this propaganda is bonkers. So it ended up having nothing to do with anybody that Justin was working with. It was just something that he found while going down that rabbit hole. Justin adds, would you like a side of fries with that freedom? Which will make a lot more sense in just a minute. Your friend, Justin. P.S. I'll be sending some good news soon. I hope so. I hope it's Justin maybe giving us some art for the This Is Art show that's coming up on September 18th. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. The video Justin sends promotes a new partnership between, get ready for this, McDonald's and the Pentagon. Not the military contractor McDonald Douglas, but the fast food chain that contributes to their customers' diabetes and obesity on a daily basis. The video, however, contends that the military is defending our freedom on a daily basis, a claim that is dubious as we don't even know where the U.S. military is currently defending our freedom. We literally have no idea where we are currently fighting all the wars we're fighting or who we're fighting against. The very idea that there's nothing more American than the military and McDonald's is a stinging indictment of an alleged democracy when it is defined by its military, which has engaged in illegal wars, and fast food, which has been shown to cause food deserts in impoverished communities of color across the United States. And that's exactly what the video says. It says there's nothing more American than the military and McDonald's. The video insists that the Pentagon and McDonald's have the same core values. Get this. Integrity service before self and excellence in all that we do. Now, I've never been in the military, but I have been in a McDonald's. And when it comes to integrity, while in line at McDonald's, I'm not struck by the moral principles or uprightness of the people behind the counter. It's difficult to argue that choosing to be an employee of a company that has been an agent of deforestation is all that moral. As for service before self, maybe, who knows, I can't see the inner workings of how a 
McDonald's operates or how their workers work, so I'm not sure if they're putting service before self, or if I would want them to put service before self. I'd rather they put worker safety before service, but that's just me. Maybe worker organizing, too. And when it comes to McDonald's excellence in all that they do, well, if you actually had food from McDonald's lately, if you have not, and you are no longer familiar with what it tastes like, let me remind you, you will be greatly disappointed. Sure, they have that proprietary Coca-Cola mix that's unlike any Coke you've ever had, but when the best menu item is Coke, it's hard to argue McDonald's's excellence. At best, it's tolerable mediocrity. At worst, it can be a death sentence. You, too, can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or just send us stuff in the actual mail to thisishell2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you do any of those things, we will more than likely share your thoughts on air. Coming up, a deep look into violence. Egon will have more of your questions to this week's question from hell, which is... Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Violence seems inescapable. It's always with us. Violence is always an option when it comes to solving any of our problems. Violence is seen as necessary in order to fight against the violence we see perpetrated upon the victims of violence. So what can be done in order for us to break what seems to be an infinite cycle of violence that stretches back to our earliest history and seems to reach forward into an inevitable future filled with even more violence? Here to help us get a better understanding of what violence is and why it is returning to This Is Hell, Brad Evans is author of Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brad. Great to join you again. It's a real pleasure to be here. You can follow Brad on Twitter at Hist of Violence, and you can find out more about Brad at his website, brad-evans.co.uk. The foreword to your book is written by Jake Chapman, a British visual artist who works with his brother Dinos as the Chapman Brothers. In their provocative practice, the Chapman Brothers reappropriate work by figures from Goya to Hitler. In that foreword, Chapman quotes you writing, Humanity is bound to the sacrificial model of existence, and such sacred harm continues to bring us to the point of our annihilation. And so, countering annihilation requires liberating the political imagination from the scene of the sacrificial, for it is precisely our allegiance to a sacred claim on life where the memory of violence is inscribed with the logics of violence to come. So, does the value we put on martyrdom when it comes to, for example, the military and the willingness to pay the ultimate price for country, does that value we place on self-sacrifices of virtue lead to violence, even against those who are allegedly the people we're trying to be trying to save? Yes, absolutely. I think that's one of the fundamental, I guess, uh, points I try to make in the book. Um, What I'm very much interested in is trying to understand the point that you make earlier, Chuck, around, you know, why is it that violence seems so inescapable for us and so inescapable for us historically and also into the future? And the point that I try to make in the book really is that 
the history of violence is a history of religious warfare in one way or another. And even as we enter into the modern period, the theological and what I'm relating to that is ideas around the sacred and sacrifice always find a way of kind of smuggling themselves into the social system, into the social order. Now, over time, whilst the what we might call the, the various sacred objects for power change and you can for instance think in terms of christianity the sacred object for power becomes the body of christ with the advent of the modern nation state that sacred object almost like the untouchable excess the thing that you cannot critique and whose violence upholds the system is the military hero so with the advent of the modern state then the you know you, you talk about um the Chapmans and with Goya, Goya painted this beautifully. Goya understood that with the emergence of the death of God comes the military hero. And how often do we hear, for instance, that we can't criticize wars of the past because of the people who have died in their name? And we uphold these kind of military figures as some kind of sacred object, which I think, and I argue in the book, actually came to define a particular period in history, which was defined by the modern nation state. I do argue in the book that we actually went beyond that with liberalism. You just mentioned the death of God, and I don't want to pass on that real quick. So uh, for the listening audience, what do you mean by the death of God? Well, the death of God is a particular um, reference to, obviously, the work of Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche um, declared the death of God. Um, Now, what Nietzsche, it was interesting when, when people talk about Nietzsche's provocation concerning the death of God, they always kind of start with this initial, almost like a, you know, a tabloid headline, God is dead. And Nietzsche made this provocation very much actually in respect to the death of a very particular God, and that was the Christian God. Um, but what Nietzsche, you know, what people forget is that when Nietzsche was making this uh, this thing, this quote that he says, God is dead, God, is re- God remains dead, and we have killed him, he then goes on to say, what sacred games will we now have to invent for ourselves now that we have become the murderers of all murderers, now that we become gods? And what Nietzsche was really prophesizing was the violence that took place in the 20th century. You know, the advent of humans believing that they were the most formidable force on the planet, acting like gods, acting like Caesars with, you know, all this technological supremacy in a way in which the sacred never went away with the secularism of the 20th century. On the contrary, we invented massive sacred games in the, you know, we look at the Holocaust, which is literally sacrificed by fire. So we have this reinscription of religious motifs, which constantly justify mass killing for some greater good. So is human-caused climate change, is that evidence of the death of God? Well, I I think that's, you know, it's evidence of a certain move towards a post- you know, omnipresent God order. But I think what we've encountered with the advent, for instance, of, you know, um, without kind of rushing on in terms of the the points which I make in, in the book, but what, what I try to argue in the book is that we've gone through various chapters in the history of religious politics and religious war. And one of the arguments which I make in the book is that, you know, that the, the last chapter was basically liberalism. And liberalism had its own sacred object. So if the modern nation state kind of, you know, constituted and constructed itself around the military hero, liberalism really 
took hold of what we might call biospheric or planetary life, of which the ecology was a part, and really foregrounded the victim as a sacred object which had to, had to be defended and in which violence had to you know, be carried out in its name. And what we've certainly witnessed over the last 30 years is the effective militarization of ecological um, narratives, the ways in which ecologies have been absorbed into narratives of endangerment, into narratives of warfare, narratives of violence, and the overt politicization of them, always done in the name of vulnerable populations who somehow need protecting, so we need to carry out violence in their name. Now, what I find particularly striking about all of this as well is that what really comes to the fore through all this is the power of technology. And another point, I guess, where I kind of end up in, in, in the actual book is to argue that we're entering into a new sacred order for politics, what I've called the techno-theodicy, where technology is now presented to us as the only thing that will save us. And that only thing that will save us is actually the thing which is bringing about our own ruination as well. If we think, you know, the history of the 20th century is ecological devastation wrought by industrialization. And we're now taught once again to find faith in technology, but in a way which we know is bringing about our own ruination. And that to me, going back to Nietzsche, of course, is the very basis of nihilism. You write, just as the violence of Christianity, for example, needed the body of Christ, so the nation needed the body of the hero, while claims to humanity needed the suffering body of the victim. This need to turn victims into sacred objects was, I believe, the poetic truth of humanitarian war, which resurrecting theological notions of just violence also presented humanity before us as an endangered and violent form. How do humanitarian wars endanger humanity? Well, quite simply, is that they perpetuate the cycle of violence. They they force us to accept the injuncture that life is fundamentally insecure by design, that there is no escaping from violence. The best we can seek to do is somehow regulate it. And I find it somehow, you know, a preposterous idea that we would say that we are working and mobilizing ourselves on behalf of an endangered hum humanity, which is being torn apart as rightly as it is through war, conflict, violence. And the only way we can somehow find a response or a rescue to this is by carrying out more war, conflict and violence. And to me, of course, it, it forces us to confront much deeper philosophical questions, which might take much greater time to resolve, but certainly that is the task confronting us. If we're going to say that there is something called humanity that we should actually think deeply and seriously about and something which is truly worth protecting and preserving, then surely it's not beyond us to imagine a kind of politics which is not bound to the necessity for violence. So to what extent are we violent because we have connected violence to God? And, and more importantly, is that a cultural universal, applying violence to a belief in a creator? Hmm. Well, I think obviously what we there are, there are many different modalities of violence. Now, I think if we think back kind of historically, um, one of the striking things, you know, if we walk into any natural history museum, you know, it, it becomes very painfully evident to us that the history that we like to tell ourselves, first of all, about the human condition is a natural history of violence. That humans are born, you know, even if we imagine these kind of prehistoric hominids in some 
dark, dank cave. You know, their life is kind of miserable, devoid of laughter, joy. And then suddenly, of course, we, you know, we invent fire. We have this kind of history amongst ourselves in which we are survivors and we have to survive against the odds and against the elements. Now, first of all, I think that narrative of history needs to be challenged because I don't think that humans are just simply naturally violent. And actually, I think it takes a great deal for humans to actually to be violent with one another. Perhaps one of the questions we can ask ourselves is at an individual level, why are we not more violent towards one another, because I don't think killing comes easy to humans. But beyond that, I think the question is not about whether, you know, humans are, you know, what is violence and whether humans are naturally violent or not, is how do we justify violence? Because if we understand this kind of almost pre-civilized, pre-religious forms of violence, what marks it out is that there's no what we might call metaphysics. And what I mean by metaphysics is the greater good. The violence even if it does occur, it is just simply said to happen just out of base level human survival. But what we understand from the advent of ancient Greece and Rome through to Christianity and the modern nation state is, in order for violence to occur, it has to be justified. We have to make some appeal to some idea of a greater good. And to me, that appeal to the greater good is precisely leads us directly into what we might call the politics of the sacred. This idea that there is something worth killing for, something worth dying for, because there is something beyond ourselves which we should sacrifice ourselves towards. And I think that has really infected our entire political and philosophical history, especially if we want to talk about Western or European metaphysical and political history. And when we talk about climate change or inequality, we always hear these terms about how we're going to have to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice in order to save ourselves from climate change. We're going to have to sacrifice ourselves in order to confront inequality and poverty. How does that, you know, embracing of sacrifice, how does that affect the way that we respond to the challenges of the day? Well, it completely normalizes the language. And if you, if you think about, you know, sacrifice itself as a profoundly theological term, and I agree with you, Chuck, you know, you, it's, if you think about everyday conversations, how often in our lives are we asked to sacrifice, that we have to sacrifice for, you know, the greater good, we have to sacrifice for, you know, um, for the ecology or whatever else. And you know, in the book, I actually go back to the, the history of, um, you know, Greek literature and the story of, you know, the Oresteia and Agamemnon's very famous, you know, this is the birth of Western literature. And one of the most famous sacrifices in the history of Western literature is when Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia, which is one of the first recorded cases of feminicide in literature, in order to appease the gods so they can win the Trojan War. You know, there's this idea that some sacrifices are worth it because we can improve ourselves as a nation, protect ourselves better. Now, this idea, you know, and this is a, a narrative which goes through the heart of Christianity. You know, Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for us. The hero sacrificed himself so we can live with our freedoms. Now we all have to sacrifice ourselves because, you know, of the types of futures that we have to think about. To me, 
if we're talking about genuine love for someone, genuine love for an ecology, and this is one thing which I end the book on, you know, to me, if you are in love with your family and your friends, and to me, politics begins there, because if we want to talk about security, then you begin with your loved ones. Why else do we talk about this? Or even philosophy is the love for the friend and the love for knowledge. There's no sacrifice involved. It's not a sacrifice to say that I want to protect my family. It's not a sacrifice to say, you know, that I can reimagine a different idea of a politics of love. Sacrifice is almost like a contract or a demand. And I think that we need to kind of get ourselves out of that language because the sacrifice is so infused with narratives of blood and violence. Why do we find it so difficult to find a new vocabulary which has deep philosophical meaning? You also write that it was only after meeting the Mexican abstract artist Chantal Meza, who is now your wife, that I truly recognized the nature of my problem. Or to put it more explicitly, my problem was that I literally couldn't see the problem. You then describe how you could see that problem by looking at abstract art and describe how you and Chantal were at the Tate Museum in London and are wandering eventually led us into the thankfully empty room housing Mark Rothko's Seagram murals. We spent an afternoon immersed in the intensity of his brilliant works, commenting on the violence and the pain they conveyed, the internal suffering and the depths of despair, the subtle light and the darkened vortexes, the eternal optimism and the worldly tragedies yet to come. So Rothko's large Large works are often described as color fields featuring large rectangles of what I can only imagine are vibrant colors as, Brad, I'm completely colorblind, but I've always loved his work and have never known why I was so drawn to them, why I could just stare at them for such long periods of time. How do you see violence in suffering in large color fields with rectangles? And does Rothko give you a better understanding of violence than any more classical, traditional, figurative depiction of violence? Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I will come on to this in a moment. In terms, I think, first of all, it's worth remembering, the, you know, and we've kind of forgotten this, that abstract expressionism, there was a moment in history where it was deemed very politically dangerous. And I'm talking about the degenerate art exhibition and the Nazi Germany. Now, there's a particular reason why Nazi Germany signaled out abstract expressionism, as opposed, for instance, to figurative art, which was favoured, certainly, by Hitler, was precisely because... It reveals something about the inner complexities of life. You know, you can't simply identify with abstract expressionism. It asks us to reveal something much more complex about the human condition, to be more aware of the intimate realities of suffering and violence, which are not simply representational or, or don't live up to some ideal standard. And I think that's, you know, we should constantly remember that history of the importance of abstract expressionism. And this is something which, as you mentioned, which I learned to really appreciate much more fully through the conversations with my brilliant wife, who has really shown me the value and the importance of art more generally, but also abstraction in particular, with a very unique kind of Mexican approach to this. Now, in terms of Rothko, there's a brilliant quote by Rothko where he says that, People think that I paint joyful paintings. They are completely wrong. I paint the abyss. And I think, you know, the, the thing is with Rothko, you, as with most artists, you know, we now live in this age today of, of a technical oversaturation of images where everybody has probably seen a Rothko. Everybody has probably seen every single painting that is to see before you even step foot into a gallery. 
you can never appreciate the brilliance of Rothko unless you're actually in the company of his work. And because it demands immersion, it demands your time, you recognize that the lines he draws are they draw you in and they leave you feel completely unsettled. There was a remarkable moment when we, you know, when we were in that you, you refer to this Tate Modern exhibition, we were in the, the Tate Modern and we were sat in this room and as I say, it's thankfully empty. And we, we were discussing Rothko's work and how real violent and unsettling the work was. And there was a remarkable moment where two other people entered the room and there was this elderly, well, I say elderly, sort of probably around my age, so elderly woman who came into the room with her young child. And the child was looking at the pictures and she says, hi, darling, how do you think this work makes you feel? And he said, mommy, it makes me feel very confused. And she said, no, this is what the work means. And it was like as if the child got it, but the mother didn't. She wanted to apply a definitive truth to this work, where, of course, none exists with Rothko. But what Rothko really does is he takes you into the intimate depths of the abyss. And, you know, and I've truly believed that with his work, that you have to, you know, think about figurative art or a lot of figurative art. And I'm not talking all figurative art, but some figurative art is, it likes to give you an immediate response, an instant recognition, an immediate kind of, you know, explanation as to what it means. Abstract art doesn't do that. And it's not that there's no truth there, but it requires greater attention, more intensity, which is what philosophy should do. And also what our politics sorely needs. You know, this demand for instant answers, instant responses, this is leading us to ruination. And there is so much, therefore, we can learn, especially from Rothko, about you know, how we learn to witness suffering, which is not so explicable, but we know is like a Rothko painting, layered upon layered throughout history. And I think that's the real lesson of Rothko. And I think there's no coincidence then that you know, Rothko's darkest works, his black paintings, actually feature in a, in a, in, sorry, in, in a chapel because Rothko really paints the ultimate abyss, which is the void. Let's talk about that void for a moment, but I, I just want to add that I, I totally agree with you. When I was looking at images yesterday of the Seagram murals online, looking at them on my computer monitor, I didn't get the feeling that I do when I am in front of a painting by Rothko. And I've never got that feeling when I look at it in a book or in some static image, as opposed to when I'm actually there and can see the brush lines. That's when it really, really grabs me. So I want to ask you a question that you ask yourself in the book, and I know that's really cheap, but what is the relationship between sacred violence and the void? Well, I think the question for me, when you talk about earlier about, you know, about me recognize i have this moment and i wouldn't call it an epiphany because epiphany again is too much of a religious term but there was a moment in which i had this kind of recognition that i really couldn't gain a real tangible purchase on what was really troubling me now as i mentioned in the introduction to the book you know i'd really you know engaged with some of the most troubling texts and some of the most brilliant texts on this from the writings of primo levi to the also the philosophical work of georgia wagamben and i think my trouble was that you know the way in which they dealt with annihilation was that 
you know, what more could be said? You know, how dark did you really want to go with this? It, it was, you know, was there anything to be gained from writing another book on extreme violence, another book on annihilation, which offered nothing different other than just simply documenting how atrocious we know the human condition can really be? And I thought, you know, well, what, why is there, if we can understand the history of our violence, as a history of our allegiance to the sacred, then why do we need the sacred? You know, what is it about the sacred that comforts us and deludes us into believing that we need to turn things into sacred objects, that we can only find meaning in life because we have some sacred ideal which we can all kind of bow down to and give ourselves over because it gives us meaning in this world. And to me, there, was, there had to be something behind that. And that something behind that, I think, is a genuine heartfelt fear of nothingness, that there might be you know, something just completely arbitrary to the human condition, that we might just be thrown into this world that we live and die. There may be, you know, there might not be any real meaning to life, but that to me doesn't mean that, you know, that life has no meaning at all. It means if life is all we have, then we really should make the best of it. Something which again, which Nietzsche pointed out. So to me, there was, there was something that was nagging me, which kind of lay behind this call to the sacrifice. And that is what I elect to term in the book, The Void. The Void is something which, again, is, you know, it's kind of touched upon in terms of philosophical debates, but more in the context of nothingness and John Paul Sartre. But I found it was largely absent in most political discussions, but it's there in volumes in literary text. You think of Samuel Beckett, you know, he engages with the void constantly. It's there in art. Artists understand the void. So for me, then, we have this real rich, creative history of people who willingly recognize the importance of the void, not because it leads to the absence of meaning or not because it leads to complete nihilism, but on the contrary, it's only by dealing with the question of the void that actually we could really truly imagine what it means to be human in the 21st century. So I didn't think then the void, and this is again was something which became so apparent to me through you know, in watching my wife work and engaging with her work was how actually the void was also a site of creativity. And if we think about the great people from history who have really willingly thrown themselves into the void in order to truly imagine what it might, reimagine what humanity might mean going forward, to me, there was something that was really untapped there that might finally allow us to break the link between politics, philosophy, and the sacredness of life. So why why does the possibility that we are a fluke, a stroke of luck, that we are just, it's random that we even exist individually. Why, why does that possibility of us being a fluke, as you call it, make us so uncomfortable? I think it's a really good question. I, I think, first of all, it's the way in which, of course, you know, humans do rightly fear the unknown. I think the unknown is a source of uh, discomfort for us, but it can also be a source of our exhilaration as well. You know, 
who would want to read a book if we knew what the final chapter was all about? You know, we want, you know, the unknown can be a source of great optimism. I think what matters more is not about whether people are fearful about the unknown, but how the unknown gets politicized. And when we see this, of course, you know, the, the most obvious ex recent example of this was post 9-11, you know, I would say, God rest his soul, you know, but Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns, if anybody, you know, is this is hell, right? The, the unknown unknowns, the way in which the unknown can be politicized to constantly uphold a certain idea of politics and metaphysics, that to me is where power always finds a way of it's of re-entering into the social order to constantly justify the violence. Yes, people might be kind of fearful of the unknown quantities of life, and people certainly want security, but I also think people are fascinated by the unknown. People want to, you know, go further in their imagination to recognize that actually we don't want to live a life of pure calculation. We don't want a future which is neatly set out for us in advance. We don't want a world in which, you know, I've seen every single Rothko before I enter into a gallery space. We're robbing ourselves of something of the exceptional nature of the human condition. You also write that the tumultuous political events of the past few years made it increasingly clear that it was now possible to write an obituary for the liberal. If liberalism was a globally ambitious project aimed at governing planetary life through its sacred wars, the ambition was over. And I know that you were touching on this a little bit earlier, but why do you believe the planetary governing ambition of liberalism is over? Yes, and I, you know, I guess in in the book I kind of paraphrased Nietzsche when I, when I and his idea on God is dead, and I argue in the book that liberalism is dead and liberalism remains dead. And part of the point of that, I, I think, you know, I wanted to be very clear that if liberalism, you know, I know people will say, well, liberalism is a mutable beast, and we need to have some, you know, recognize the way in which there are multiple liberalisms at work. But for me. We have to have a singularity to liberalism if the word was going to mean anything. That singularity to liberalism was there from its very inception. And that was the attempt to govern and control planetary life in accordance to a certain liberal idealism. Now, this idea is already there in the early writings of people such as Immanuel Kant and his idea of perpetual peace and so forth. Now, what I argue in the book is that this planetary ambition to turn all life into a kind of liberal subjectivity. That was bankrupted with the wars on terror. And I think it was bankrupted in two ways. With you know, the wars on terror, which I've written about extensively as being a form of liberal war, first of all, revealed most fully the myth of liberalism. And again, I don't want to default to Nietzsche too much, but I think Nietzsche's right when he says, that the real meaning of catastrophe for us is when we are truly exposed to the futility of the myths. So that when Nietzsche writes about the death of God, he says what was, what was really happening, of course, was that the myth of God was really exposed in its abstract nakedness for us. The same happens with the wars on terror. Who could be left in any doubt that liberalism wasn't about universality, peace, rights, and justice when confronting Abu Ghraib? or all the torturous violence, or you know, the ongoing violence in Iraq and Afghanistan. Wars carried out in the name of liberalism. Who could be left in any doubt that this project wasn't simply about universality, rights, peace, justice, and so forth? So the fundamental myths upon which liberalism was depended exploded. And also, I think internally then, 
liberalism has never been able to reconcile itself with its own, you know, its own perpetuation of narratives of racism. But also liberalism has never been able to reconcile itself with the problem of class either. So you have this, these internal explosions within liberalism as much as its overseas violence, which has simply brought the planetary ambitions to liberalism to an end. And in that sense, then the question is, if liberalism is over, then what has replaced it? And I think that is the real question which concerns me today. Well, why can't liberalism confront racism and issues of class? Well, I think liberalism has always, you know, I think th th there's a, a, a wonderful book, first of all, by Domenico Lacerdo, who pointed out um, when he argues it's liberalism a counter history. And he argues that, you know, first of all, from its very inception, liberalism invented racism as, as a global system of power. Liberalism, you know, emerges at the moment not to kind of criticize the global slave trade but actually marches hand in hand with it so the history of liberalism was inseparable from the history of racism so first of all i think you know in that sense then liberalism biopolitically has always been bound up with the history of racism and also when we talk about liberalism what we're really talking about it was a bourgeois project and it always found nice neat terms in which to say that it's acting on behalf of the global poor but never was willing to do you know wanted the necessary transformations in power which would truly emancipate global populations so you think about you know one of the obvious technical terms which liberalism has favored more recently has been one of entitlement. Entitlement has been something which has been applied in, you know, the so-called global south to try to give people more entitlements and accesses to resources, but never to really, you know, redress the economic imbalances of the world. And also been applied to desperately poor white communities, whether it's in North America or in the United Kingdom where I live. So it's all about entitlements to power rather than actually fundamentally redressing economic injustices. You know, the bourgeois classes who have always upheld liberalism have never wanted to really reconcile the two fundamental challenges of race and class within that system. So. so race as an invention of liberalism, we've had a lot of guests on our show say that racism is an invention of capitalism. Are we misled into believing something that we should not when we think of racism as an invention of capitalism instead of as an invention of liberalism? Again, I think both of them if we take a systematic systematic point of view on this, you know, if we go back to the birth of liberalism and we think about all the great so-called enlightenment thinkers, whether it's Immanuel Kant or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Paine, all these great liberal thinkers, they had just as much to say on the importance of political economy as what they did on the rights of man. And notably the rights of man, but the rights of man often corresponded to the rights of particular white wealthy men, right? So there is this then, so to me, the history of liberalism at the level of power and also at the level of ideas has been inseparable from the history of capitalism. So to talk about the history, you know, and we have this now, this you know, again, this new kind of invented term over the past kind of 20, 30 years, what we now call neoliberalism, which of course is at least a recognition that liberal governance and liberal government has always worked with the machinations of capitalism. You know, power doesn't operate in separate silos between, well, this is the political bit, this is the economic bit, this is the legal bit. 
they'd always kind of interfused with one another. And that interfusion between those powers means that when we're talking about the history of capitalism, we're talking about the history of liberalism or vice versa. And we're therefore also talking about the history of racism and also talking about the history of class as well. You write that as the forces of militarism and state policing were now being matched by the tremendous acceleration of digital technology and its involvement in our daily lives, what became crystal clear was that we were entering a new age that could be defined as a global, as you were mentioning earlier, techno-theodicy. So how does that differ from neoliberalism? How is techno-theodicy different from neoliberalism and why is it so important for us to recognize that we are now in a different system? Mm-hmm. So what I've been very much interested in is trying to identify in the book what I believe to be the dominant orders for power in, 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 in a global system. And as I argue in the book, you know, we, we have in the modern period gone from the dominance of the modern nation state to the triumph of liberalism. And I've argued that liberalism is now over. And my question was then, okay, well, if, and, and I argue in the book that what I think the global pandemic has represented is the first crisis of a truly post-liberal global order. Now, my question has been then, well, okay, what has replaced this? What is the now the dominant organizational principle for power in the world? And my question, my answer to that was, was very straightforward. It's technology. And, and, I'm, and I'm not just talking about technology as the gadgets that we buy that enable us to, you know, live our lives better or live out this, some kind of Zoomed existence. But the way in which now technology and the technology firms are the unrivaled and the most dominant source for power in the world today. If we understand power as the ability to transform the lived conditions of humans on this planet, technology today has absolutely no rival. Now, of course, we can say that neoliberalism is a part of this and has been an accelerating part of this, but it's more than simply financial power. It's more than simply wealth. What we are talking about here is something which starts from cradle literally to grave. You know, we're now in an age where every single aspect of our life is open to a continuous technological assay, where every single aspect of our life is reduced to big data, where every single word utterance response that we have is being given over to a technocratic machine. This is a power the likes of which we have not seen historically before, a power which has truly accelerated with the advent of the global pandemic. And let's be clear that the pandemic has created new winners and losers. And the winners of this pandemic are very clear for all of us to see. And if we want to understand you know, the power of, the, of these technological firms today, just look at the simple ways in which they can simply bypass governments across the world. Now, you know, for all the problems, for instance, and all the many fascistic problems of Donald Trump, look how disposable he was to these organizations the moment they thought that he was disposable. And I think that there is something really pernicious at work here with the technological firms, which operate precisely like a theology. 
They themselves are invoking their own sacred object. They demand our continuous allegiance. They tell us that there is no possible way out of them. But of course, what makes a theology a theology is a narrative of salvation and redemption. Every single problem the world faces today, we are told only technology will save us. And that to me is the basis of the emergence of a new theological paradigm for power and rule. And you're right, despite the violence, the sacrificial is precisely that which allows for the unbearable to become tolerable. So when the media and the state talk about the pandemic and getting back to normal, is it an insistence that we get back to the unbearable again being tolerable? I guess I would, I would, I would agree so. And, you know, there is something about the ways in which... Um, exceptional forms of violence and brutality become normalized through narratives of sacrifice. So um, now this is something, you know, which, which again, yeah, I don't want to become kind of too um, psychoanalytical, but was something which was understood by Freud in, in his essay on totem and taboo, where he talks about you need this kind of sacrificial excess. And then what we really use then is the, the language of sacrifice in order to normalize this behavior. Now, in the context of the pandemic, there's been this constant talk about a return to a new normal, return to normality. Rather than saying, well, actually, maybe we've gone through something that was pretty exceptional, let's keep hold of this exceptionality, and actually let's try to genuinely steer history in a different direction, which is not simply about the acceleration of technology, but actually brings us back to something much more meaningful concerning genuine human contact. And I think the one thing I think should become very evident to most people, you know, and I've been recently, you know, we've had the, you know, the, the European football championships here in the UK. And aside from the evident return to racism, which we're now seeing again, you know, dominating the conversation, what that particular event I think reveals to us is that as humans, we simply want genuine human connections with one another. And there was a real opportunity, as there's always an opportunity in these catastrophes and crises, to recreate what genuine human connections mean. But it seems like we always try to find the solutions by repackaging the old narratives of the sacred into a new discourse. And just you know, to give you another example of this, you know, we're close to approaching the 20th anniversary of the violence of September the 11th, 2001. Very few people talk about that anymore. You know, it's like as if 9-11 itself kind of disappeared into the discursive ether. And I'm not saying, you know, that we should have, you know, constantly dwell on 9-11, but there is something important about recognizing the ways in which exceptional events can become terrifyingly normal through a way in which the sacrificial violence constantly weaves its way into making things a bit more bearable for us, a bit more tolerable for us. And in that sense, you know, I, I would, you know, for your listeners, you know, there's a point, this is a point which is made, although he talks about sacrifice affirmatively in Rene Girard's brilliant book, Violence and the Sacred, where he makes the point that we need the sacred precisely because it regulates the unbearable. We need this regulation of the unbearable. My point is, no, the unbearable should be unbearable. We need to look at it and say, this is not acceptable. We need to push history in a different direction to this.
You write that racial, racial, violence, <clears throat> racial violence was never timeless, but in fact, a more recent chapter in the history of sacred violence. And unless we understand how the sacred order has already transformed into something new, what is presented as resistance can so easily be appropriated. This is when you're writing about Black Lives Matter. How can recognizing techno-theodicy affect racial violence, especially racialized violence by police? In terms of the first point, you know, the, the point which I tried to make in the book is um, race war, as it was invented in the 17th century, was a continuation of racial war by other means. And, and it, it justified that violence through, again, an appeal to a reworking of ideas of, you know, of the sacred. Now, in the contemporary context, whilst, for instance, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has been, you know, a very important and phenomenally important movement in terms of highlighting the persistence of racial injustice in the world and the continuation of racial injustice in the world. I do sometimes wonder, and I'm slightly troubled, for instance, by the constant you know, fixation on pulling down statues of dead ghosts and the ways in which you know, many of these organizations, and I see this amongst my own students, and also with other academics, who are constantly on the one hand saying we need to fight racial injustice, and yet on the other hand, are constantly demanding giving more power to technological organizations, more power in their ability to regulate themselves, to censor politicians who they find disagreeable with. And I think, you know, we need to continually fight the question of racial racism and racial injustice. But to me, the solution is not about giving more power to the most dominant forms of power in the world today, which ultimately thrive on these conflicts. You know, Twitter would never survive if there wasn't all these conflicts and public outrages and public displays. And I know actually you mentioned earlier about um, my Twitter handle. I should actually point out that I actually, I, I actually I did actually leave Twitter eight months ago precisely for this reason, because I feel that these kind of platforms are actually leading to the further infantilization and the perpetuation of particular forms of violence upon which they have become not only parasitic, but help actually perpetuate further. And I think we need to have a much more enriched conversation on the power of technology today and the ways in which it is reimagining what these kinds of violences might mean in the 21st century. You write, there is a need to understand the amalgamation of intellectual forces which render the sacred the condition of possibility for a meaningful life at the point of this annihilation. This requires addressing the ways in which life is bounded to a distinct philosophical persuasion appearing meaningful in a world which had no reason to have or ever want us, a world that is still symbolically cloaked by a theology that promises some kind of immortality in the face of death such a reckoning demands accounting for the way violence is mobilized on the backs of millions from an account of politics bounded to the question of human survival one whose very conditions make it possible to atone for every earthly sin so in death we face endless life and we will be rewarded with that immortality no matter our sins is there any disincentive within this eurocentric framework to be cruel or brutal. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like, you know, the 
sacred politics always has a contingency for cruelty. Right, you know, almost like a cruelty or brutality well served. If you're, you know, it was there in the Spanish Inquisition, it was there in the liberal way of war, and it's certainly going to be there in this new techno theodicy. That you know, cruelty well served is something which we are particularly willing to accept on, under certain conditions. And I think your question is absolutely spot on. Is well, where is the disincentive for this? Well, the disincentive certainly needs to come to my mind, with a better conception of justice and what we might perhaps imagine as a more poetic conception of justice, a justice which is not bound to the idea that in order for us to wrong historical pasts, that we need to somehow put others to the sword, that we need to you know, carry out crusades in the name of people so that life can have meaning before it eventually reaches this point of death. And in that sense, you know, I, this is a deep philosophical question about how we understand human beings' relationship to death, how we understand this kind of, you know, desire for a certain immortality complex, which seems to drive us insane as we realize that we'll always be futile in the face of it. And maybe this demands then a more humble politics, a more humble appreciation that life is all that we have. But also within that, then, you know, to recognize that, you know, that human life is exceptional. You know, if we have been some freak chance of history, if we are this kind of, you know, accident of the cosmos and life is literally all that we have, then let's be joyful with it. Let's rejoice it. Let's not bind it to some idea that the only way we can find salvation is to look upon human life as a constant problem to be solved, that we need to somehow save ourselves through violence that justify this cruelty well served. And I think there is, you know, there is so much to celebrate and rejoice about the human condition. Maybe we just need a different conversation on what that actually might mean. So how dangerous is liberalism today? Is it increasingly dangerous as it diminishes? Like, a, is it like a wounded animal? Yes. And I think this, you know, this again is a good point in terms of, you know, um, when Nietzsche declared the death of God, he didn't say that all Christians died. You know, he recognized, but, but he also recognized that it would become much more aggressive in its criticisms, much more aggressive in its demand towards a certain kind of puritanism. Now, the same then, I believe, is happening with liberalism today. If I would, you know, if I say that liberalism is dead, I'm certain that many you know, of your listeners will say, well, hang about, I'm still a liberal. I haven't died. I'm still here, right? So, but what I think is happening, particularly within liberalistic discourses, is the moment that liberalism is coming to terms with its own kind of hubristic kind of nihilism, is that liberalism itself is becoming more and more kind of entrenched down into its own version of identity politics. And that in itself is, you know, if you again just take you know, an afternoon on social media to see how certain quarters of the left are also becoming increasingly puritanical, increasingly accelerationist in their own belief in technology, but also unwilling to even recognize that other people might have alternative viewpoints that we need to actually work through together. That it's just all about now condemnation, moral standpointing, that because we are absolutely righteously true in our beliefs and therefore that everybody should accept this. 
you know, taking us back to Rothko, you know, he tells us that, that the world is complex, the world is messy, that the world is difficult for us to engage with. This requires, you know, a different human conversation. And I think that is where perhaps the new conversation on politics in the 21st century might begin, not referring back to absolute moralistic standpoints, which seems to be accelerating within and also beyond liberalism as well. Just a few more questions for you, Brad. You write, ontologizing vulnerability would in turn open up the space for the appearance of the new fascisms that exist in the world today. If history is our guide, it is for this reason alone that the concept of humanity needs to be freed from its sacred liberal chains, for its binds have brought it to the point of conceptual ruination. Why do and how can the sacred liberal claims of humanity, how can that lead to fascism? Mm The narrative of vulnerability, I think, became a very particular liberal trope, certainly from the mid-1980s onward. And, and I think there's a fundamental difference here from saying, first of all, that human life is in a, in a condition of precarity and vulnerability as a result of certain political conditions or certain economic conditions then the more favored liberal approach was basically to say that all life is fundamentally vulnerable and insecure by design. Now, this becomes a a very favored and dominant liberal motif, as I say, which happens from the 1980s, really accelerated in the post 9-11 moment. And this shift towards the ontologization of vulnerability really finds a home in the doctrine of resilience. The doctrine of resilience, as I argued in a book, Resilient Life, which I argued in itself was inherently nihilistic concept, is something which basically forced us to participate in a world which was fundamentally insecure by design. Accept the inevitability of catastrophe. See catastrophe as a learning process. Recognize that in the end, we're all ontologically vulnerable. Why? Well, perhaps we're going to die. But in the meantime, just accept and embrace our vulnerability. Now, this to me was, first of all, a, you know, a, a very problematic assertion. What did it mean when you have Barack Obama on, you know, in, in ground zero on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, telling Americans in, in a process where he effectively inaugurates wholesale the doctrine of resil- resilience, saying to American people, another attack is probably inevitable. You know, what does it mean when we have this kind of commitment to a politics of catastrophe, a politics of crisis, saying that these things are somehow inevitable or inescapable? Now, that to me is the very basis of nihilism, is doing the same thing over and over and over because you believe it is inescapable, even in the closing down of any possible political alternative. Now, in the context then of the contemporary political moment, This shift then and the acceleration of narratives of vulnerability, which we see, you know, I've lost track of the last time when I switched on any major news channel where somebody doesn't use the word resilience. It's like sacrifice. It's completely embedded in our political fabric and our political vocabulary to the point where it is so normalized, nobody even questions it. And to me, this question that we're all ontologically vulnerable was precisely where the likes of Donald Trump came in. Donald Trump completely mobilized this narrative and completely turned it back in upon itself. 
Because what Trump's message was, no, you are not ontologically vulnerable. No, you are not. You might be insecure. Bear in mind, for instance, you know, Trump's message, for instance, that, you know, the first American president to say, you know what? You Amer America is no longer great, right? So Trump comes back in on this and says, we can be great again. And to me, it's not a question of greatness or vulnerability, because that's just simply a dialectic in the way in which, and this is something I talk about in the book, in which Trump kind of presented this. But certainly fascistic organizations, as much as they did in fascist Germany, they don't appeal to narratives of strength to begin with. They're always mobilizing ontologies of vulnerability. Nobody understood this better than Wilhelm Reich in his wonderful book on the mass psychology of fascism. You know, it's not about great narratives of sovereignty. You know, most people, if you ask them on the street, what does sovereignty mean? They could barely give you an answer. It's appealing to everyday petty anxieties and insecurities. That mobilization of vulnerability, telling people, yes, you are vulnerable, I think leads to a different kind of politics in which actually we bypass people who are genuinely vulnerable as a result of systems of oppression and domination and makes us kind of feel all kind of cozy in our feelings that we all might be somehow a victim and vulnerable. And I think we need a better conversation than that. How does considering the void undermine the inevitable future of violence? I think in terms of considering the void, to me, this is not a question of nihilism. It's a question of imagination. One of the things which I, you know, in the book, the, the penultimate chapter, the, the, the last two chapters, one's on the idea of a transgressive witness, and the other, the final chapter is on trying to imagine a new concept of love. To me, what's solely needed in the world today is a better conversation and a better political imagination. Now, this is not something which is can be the sole preserve of politicians, of critical thinkers, of, you know, the one frustration I've always had as a political theorist was time and time again, I would hear other political thinkers say, yes, we need to have a better political imagination. Most of them would never speak to artists, writers, or creative producers. Or if they used artists, writers, or creative producers thinking, it was always to appropriate them in order to make a certain political point. One of the things which I've tried to do, particularly in the column which I've done with the LA Review of Books, is to try to say that artists, writers, and creatives, and poets, they have as much a right to, to say what they think politically, but also what they do is profoundly political. If we are going to construct a better political imagination to take this idea of the void seriously, then this needs to have a shared conversation between philosophers, writers, critical thinkers, you know, artists, writers, and so forth, in a way in which we can have a better understanding of what does it mean to confront the unbearable, to deal with the void in a truly creative way. And that to me, as I say, is a conversation which I sadly don't often see happening from certain quarters, even of so-called radical politics in the world. So what happens to any concept of love we may have when violence is conducted in its name? 
Well, the, the love itself becomes a love which is suffocating, a love which is, um, you know, I use the term, for instance, you know, again, the, the earlier example I gave of Agamemnon, you know, um, sacrificing his daughter, the, you know, the, the innocent girl, Iphigenia, in order to carry out and win the war. Now, he does this in the name of love. The love of his people is greater than the love he feels for his daughter. Now, this is what I call in the book the violence of an artificial love, because it's a love which is bound to the demands for sacrifice. I am completely in love with my wife. I don't think that anything we have together demands sacrifice. The love is not a sacrifice. I give what I can to her and would ask nothing in return. It's not a contract. To me, if love is worthy of the name and what we might call a poetic concept of love, which I find there in the writings of Dante, it's there in you know, the artworks of Frida Kahlo, it's there in Rothko, this idea of love is a love which gives over and demands nothing in return. One last question for you, Brad. Brad Evans is author of H.A. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, really is, you know, what a remarkable way of thinking about reimagining politics today. Brad Evans is author of Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. You cannot follow Brad on Twitter at Hist of Violence, but you can find out more about Brad at his website, brad-evans.co.uk. One last question for you, Brad, and as always, with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, which is appropriate for our conversation. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, our task is to insist upon a break with the sacrificial model and all mythical claims for meaning, which in the process of realizing their mission, continually ask for violence enacted in their names. Finally, our task is to insist upon the need for the abstract and thought to love without the need to give over to sacrifice to meld one's life with a truly liberated humanity, ecce humanitas, in the most poetic sense. What is envisaged here is a collective notion of life that is able to stare into the void without becoming a monstrous adaptation of what was once defeated. Is the task, in order to confront violence, that we must consider what we believe is sacred, that we must confront Eurocentric religion, is our task confronting our understanding of God in order to confront violence? Yes, but I also think it's to understand the multiple ways in which God appears. What is a God? And I think the most difficult and perhaps, well, you know, if you want to make your listeners a bit more uncomfortable today, if we are saying technology is now God, is the omnipresent force in the world today, what does it mean to challenge that sacred order? How can we reimagine ourselves beyond this? And I think, you know, what's really at stake here is a very simple, but perhaps the most important question we might ask ourselves is, what does it truly mean to be human in the 21st century? Technology is not going to save us. It's going to lead to ruination. And unless we find a better way to reimagine human connections in the 21st century, then the nihilism is already going to occur. 
Brad, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show. When we had you back on, and when we had you on back in uh, 2019, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I, I cannot thank you enough for reaching out to us to tell you, uh, tell us about your new book, Eche Humanitas: Beholding the Pain of Humanity. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks again. Take care. Live from the United States, where technology is a religion. This is hell. If you liked what you just heard from Brad Evans, please support completely. Listeners supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a brand new monologue from me and a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash this is hell. Egon, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. Well, uh, this week's question from hell is who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? That's who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes. Uh, our first listener response offers you a bit of benediction, Chuck. We have Laddie Scott O saying, certainly not you. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> There's a few nice things left in the world. Uh, Braden S. responded, the capitalist who sold us the wall. <laughs> That's a good one. I thought he was going to say the gun, but the wall is much better, much better. Yeah, and that, that, that might be true, actually. Yeah. Uh, Mark B. says, no one will know because it won't be televised. Uh, revolution up here. Mm-hmm. And then Mason W. gives us our second musical answer in a row, who says, the first one now will later be last. For the times, they are a change. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, as to who will be last uh, up against the wall when the revolution comes, Warren L. says, that's the fun thing about revolutions. You never know who will go from being one of the cool kids to the scapegoat. Uh, the guillotine. That always worked out for Robespierre. <laughs> it certainly did. And then finally, we have Adam A. who says... As always, the last against the wall, we're always the best at straddling the fence. Oh, Jesus. We'll even have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Speaking of which, Egon, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow, we have Maiwa Montenegro DeWitt on her book, Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty, and Pandemic Prevention. Any, sounds, any ideas for Thursdays? Or no? Sounds very good. Yeah, We're still working on Thursday, uh, but of course we have Jeff Dorchin and his moment of truth. He will be taming taboos with internet knowledge on Thursday. And here's the announcement I was talking about earlier. Saturday, July 24th, Jeff Dorchin will be appearing at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, 2251 West Devon at 2 p.m. just beneath these studios shortly after the world broadcast premiere of that week's This Is Hell on WNUR at FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. Jeff will be reading some of his all-time favorite moments of truth accompanied by live music. Yes, that is the day we are supposed to be celebrating our 25th year on WNUR, but we've tentatively rescheduled that party until Saturday, September 18th due to the pandemic. Instead, on Saturday, July 24th, and just a couple of Saturdays from now, Jeff will be sharing his favorite moments of truth live on stage beginning at 2 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. This event will only last for about an hour, so get there early so you do not miss a moment. One last thing, the New York Times front page article on the protests and deprivations in Cuba today, it does not mention the U.S. trade embargo, which has caused the deprivations that led to the protests. 
until the 14th paragraph, which is on the jump page, not the front page. It's almost as if the New York Times is doing everything it can to blame communism for Cuba's problems and ignoring the major cause of the deprivations that are mentioned in the story's front page headline, which is the U.S. trade embargo. And it's really obvious to everybody except for the New York Times. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thanks to our guest, Brad Evans. Thanks to Egon for producing. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.